Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. As always, thank you so much for subscribing and listening to the show. It is with great pleasure that I introduce this week's guest, Tobin Gilman. He has had a three-decade career in marketing, and his hobbies include antique bottle collecting, motorcycling, and shooting sporting clays. He is also the author of The McGlincy Killings in Campbell, California, an 1896 unsolved mystery. I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. It's, it's great to be here. So you grew up in the area where the murders happened, right? You, you have been interested in this case for years. Yeah, I, I spent most of my childhood in San Jose, California. And when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, my dad actually owned a, uh, a piece of industrial property in Campbell, the little township of Campbell. And I would go down there periodically to help do building maintenance and landscaping work. And it happened to be located on a street called McGlincy Avenue. And at the time, that was just another street in San Jose and in the Campbell area. It really had no, no relevance or meaning to me. And it was only... Many years later, after I had uh, left California and then came back to California, and I attended a presentation that was hosted by a historical group in Santa Clara County, and the subject was what was called the McGlincy murder. And um, that was where I first learned about this story. This was, oh, I think 2013 or 2014. And that kind of got my curiosity uh, going, and I ultimately decided to do more research, and that led me ultimately to write a book. So before we get into the details of the murders themselves and the manhunt that happened afterwards, I'd like to ask you about the McGlincy family. Uh, who were they and, and how did they come to settle in the area of Campbell, California? Yeah, so um, Colonel McGlincy um, actually was born and spent most of his life in Illinois. He uh, actually was a figure in the Civil War. He served under Stonewall Jackson. And um, sometime uh, after his military service had ended and his work as a journalist and an agriculture professional in Illinois was underway, he decided to move out west. I think part of it might have been some personal reasons that wanted him to get a fresh start. And of course, the weather and beautiful uh, area that uh, Santa Clara Valley once was certainly had its allure too. So it was there that he became established in Campbell, California as an orchardist. And shortly after arriving there, he met a woman named Ada Wells and they married. And so the Colonel and Mr. Uh, Mrs. McGlincy uh, moved into the Colonel's property in Campbell. And um, in addition, she had two adult children. 
a daughter, Hattie Wells, and a son, uh, Jimmy Wells. And so they all lived there on the estate, on the property. And at some point, the daughter, uh, the colonel's stepdaughter, uh, met this gentleman named James Dunham. It was a whirlwind romance. They got married. They moved together onto the property and lived with the colonel and his family, his wife. And, uh, and of course, that's when the trouble started. <laughs> yeah. And, and what was this area of California like in the late 1800s? Yeah, um, it was it was an agricultural community. The the Santa Clara Valley was and, and remains uh, topographically just an absolutely beautiful area. It uh, it's cradled between two mountain ranges. To the west, you have the Santa Cruz Mountains, and to the east, you have the Diablo Mountain Range. And uh, at the valley floor, just sits an agricultural uh, breadbasket. Um, in fact, for many many years going all the way back to the early part of the, the 20th century, even the late 19th century, the area was known as the Valley of Heart's Delight because of all of the uh, produce that it produced. There were lots of orchards. They grew cherries, they grew figs, they grew prunes and apricots. Uh, so it was very fertile. And in Campbell, there was a train depot. So that was where uh, it served as sort of a hub where this produce could get shipped to other parts of the country. And so it was a very small community at the time. You know, today, Santa Clara County has 2 million people. Um, back at the turn of the century, the county had roughly 30 to 50,000 people. So it's changed a lot, but it was a very peaceful agricultural community that lived in the shadows of the more well-known and more glamorous uh, little town of San Francisco to the north. So you talked about James Dunham, uh, the villain in this story. You mentioned he married the colonel's stepdaughter, Hattie Wells. Uh, what do we know about Dunham, his early life, and what do we know about his courtship with Hattie? Well, he came from a, a very strange family. He was uh, raised, his father died while he was still a child, his mother lived in the community and she owned properties in the area. And at a very early age, James seemed a little bit off. Um, he seemed to have a, a violent streak that wasn't seen every day, but when it surfaced, it surfaced in some grisly ways. There's a, a story that one of his childhood acquaintances shared with law enforcement when they were searching for him about when he was a child one day, he had asked his mom for some money to get some candy at the local store, and she told him no. And so he promptly went out in the back backyard and snapped the necks of several chickens that she had back there. And um, there were other instances later in his life as an adult when he was sort of, he became a drifter, by the way, a, a ranch hand. He never really stuck in one place. He tried various ways to earn a living, but never really had a lot of stability. And he also didn't appear to have really any deep, close friendships. And there were instances where he had uh, had some altercations with coworkers uh, on ranches that he worked at. In, in one case, he, he came very, very close to killing someone. So he had this uh, dual personality where he was known generally as a likable person, but he just didn't have any real close relationships. Um, he had a, a couple of siblings. He had a younger brother, Charles Dunning, who was uh, Dunham, who was, you know, more reasonable guy. He, uh, he attended San Jose State College and he had a younger sister and she was sort of a quiet person, I, I suppose. But what was um, interesting is that before James met Hattie and the two of them got married, which, as I mentioned earlier, happened in a very short period of time, a matter of weeks or perhaps just a few months, um, the younger brother, Charles, had been dating Hattie. Um, so that was just kind of an interesting little twist. And then when they did get married and they moved onto the ranch property and lived with the Colonel and Mrs. McGlincy, trouble began very early on. It was very clear that Mrs. McGlincy did not trust him at all. And he didn't seem to get along well with the colonel. It was more of a the colonel being willing to tolerate him, but 
didn't particularly seem to like him. And he didn't really seem to fit in with the, the younger, the adult children of the Colonel and Mrs. McGlincy or the other people on the ranch. So trouble began at a tension, I should say, began at a very early stage in that family relationship. In your book, you suggest that Dunham had a reputation as a, a corner cutter <laughs> in life, uh, a petty thief. But in the weeks and months leading up to the murders, he did appear, at least outwardly, to be trying to better himself. He enrolled in college, uh, correct, at the age of 30? That's right. I think that uh, marriage and the, uh, the family environment that he was in uh, put, gave him kind of the, the impetus, maybe the kick in the rear that he needed to, to get his act together. And he enrolled at uh, Santa Clara College, now known as the University of Santa Clara. Um, he was a pre-law student and his professors, you know, spoke fairly highly of him. He, he worked hard. He was a regular student and had aspirations of becoming a lawyer. So those were all real positive steps. Um, but at the same time, perhaps there might have also been a lot of additional pressure, the pressure of the, uh, the schoolwork, the academic load he was carrying, the pressure of being the father of an infant infant son, a new father, uh, a new husband, and living in a uh, in close quarters with in-laws. All of those things came together that perhaps put a lot of pressure that he hadn't really felt in his life leading up to that. Right. Uh, in the weeks leading up to the murders, uh, right, there, there were arguments between he and Hattie, and it had been a tradition in the McGlincy household for Dunham to play cards with the colonel, his father-in-law, in the evenings. But that had stopped a few weeks before the murders happened, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, and, and he was also subject to some uh, ridicule from fellow ranch hands. So, yeah, um, it, it, it's clear that he was simply not fitting in well with the family or the other people that worked on the ranch. Right, yeah. So if you don't mind, walk us through the night of May 26th, 1896. Uh, what happened exactly to the best of your understanding? Yeah, so what had happened was um, that evening, uh, sometime around seven or eight o'clock uh, at night, um, the Colonel, Colonel McGlincy, his son-in-law, Jimmy Wells, and a ranch hand, George Shabel, um, went into town for some sort of a community meeting. Alone in the home were Hattie Dunham, James's wife, his mother-in-law, Mrs. McGlincy, and um, their little one-year-old infant son. And Dunham was not present on the property at that time. He had actually left the home a day earlier. But sometime around 10 o'clock, uh, while the men were still gone, Dunham returned to the home and he went upstairs to where Hattie's room was and he brutally murdered her. He literally snapped her neck and then shoved a piece of clothing in her mouth. Um, next door, in the room next door, was the nanny. Her name was Minnie Schessler. She was sort of a domestic that helped out with the baby and she heard the commotion. She came into the room and Dunham brutally murdered her with a hatchet. He then went downstairs where his mother-in-law, Mrs. Dunham, excuse me, Mrs. McGlincy was sleeping and brutally murdered her with the blunt edge of a hatchet. After killing the, the women, uh, Dunham waited in the home for the men to come home. Uh, a little bit later, the Colonel, and his son-in-law, Jimmy Wells, and George Shabel arrived home. Shabel went and put the horses in the barn, and the colonel and Jimmy Wells entered the house. The colonel was the first to enter the house, and Dunham was waiting there at the door. And as the colonel came in, Dunham hit him over the head with a hatchet. And Miraculously, uh, it, didn't, it didn't kill the colonel, and the colonel was able to run through the house. And in the meantime, Jimmy Wells was right behind him. 
And Jimmy and Dunham then got into a very violent fight. Furniture was broken. There was a guitar that got broken. And eventually, uh, Dunham shot Jimmy Wells in cold blood. And then he went after the colonel. By this time, the colonel had uh, gone through the kitchen and out the kitchen door and was somewhere in the, on the property. And Dunham came out on the property and chased the colonel into a shed and eventually shot the colonel through a door in the shed. And while all this was happening, Shabel was in the barn. And of course, by this time, he had heard the gunshot and was well aware of the uh, commotion and the exchanges of words that had taken place outside the home. And so there's Shabel, and he's sitting there in the barn watching all of this transpire. And into the barn goes Dunham. And Dunham calls out Shabel's name. George, are you there? And Shabel, obviously, was as being as, as quiet as a mouse. And Dunham actually climbed up the ladder, looked around, didn't see Shabel, and left. And uh, so Shabel actually survived this. And in the meantime, another ranch hand who had been sleeping in a bunk had heard all of the commotion, and he tried to escape the premises. Dunham saw him running off and shot him in cold blood with two, with two rounds. And then continued looking for Shabel, and then eventually gave up and left on horseback. And that was when he started heading into town and was spotted by people on the street. And so at that point, uh, Dunham was now a fugitive. He had committed the murders. Things did not go as he probably originally planned. And he was a fugitive. Yeah, it's a really chilling account. And another interesting aspect of this is that Dunham murdered in multiple ways in in a short period of time. He snaps his wife's neck, which seems to be a very intimate way to kill someone. Then he uses a hatchet and then finally a gun. I mean, he was well, well prepared. Yeah, the the pistol was the weapon of last resort, but the method of murder was extremely violent and extremely grisly. And typically when, uh, if you watch the crime shows like I do, you know, the first thing you learn is that the the way in which a subject might have been murdered often tells you a bit about the motive of the killer. And in this case, it was pretty clear that there was definitely personal emotions that went into this. It wasn't just, you know, a random hit. He had, he had rage inside of him. The other thing, by the way, Eric, that really interested me about this is the way it was covered in the newspapers. In the book, Um, I actually had taken several stabs at describing the events that occurred that night when it finally occurred to me that a better way of presenting that was to actually just share the way it was presented in one of the major local papers, the San Francisco Call, which at the time, this was one of the the Hearst papers, and they were sort of known for their sensationalist uh, journalism. And the, the headlines were all about blood and death and destruction. And, you know, it's just very violent. And the way that reporter told that story, it was almost like he was writing a, a screenplay for some sort of a, of a horror film. He just took the reader through it in, in a very detailed way. It was almost horrifying for me to, to read it and transcribe it. But that was the way journalism was in those days. And um, I actually included in the book some headlines from other papers across the country. And that style of sensationalist journalism was, I guess, predominant nationwide because that was the way it was covered across the country. Absolutely. So the sheriff and, and others arrived. And as they examined the crime scene, one bit of evidence seemed pretty intriguing. Um, it was a note allegedly left behind by Hattie. Yeah, and we'll never know. You know, there's a question of did Hattie actually write that note or did Dunham forge that note to throw crime scene investigators off? Um, I tend to think that maybe she anticipated something bad happening, but hadn't foreseen exactly what was going to happen or when it was going to happen. And she had probably just written that note in sort of a, forecasting way. It was basically a a farewell note, right? Exactly. 
Um, you know, the other thing that uh, that is interesting is that every photograph, every picture of him was removed from the house. So Dunham, and this probably happened, I, I was imagine Dunham probably did this after he had killed the women, but before he uh, had his encounter with the Colonel and the other two men. And um, he removed every, every image of himself, presumably so that when investigators came to search for him, if they came to search for him, wouldn't have anything to go on. And he overlooked one tiny little tintype photograph of himself that was probably an oversight on his part rather than deliberate. And so that was all they had to go by. It's also my assumption that that was a last resort strategy, that his plot, when he conceived this days or weeks in advance, was that his intent was that all the witnesses would be killed and he would be able to show up at the scene and pretend to be as horrified as everyone else. And of course, the resistance that he, he met with the Colonel and with Jimmy Wells kind of foiled that plan. But if it had all gone according to his plan, he would have never been a suspect. And an important part of that, correct, was that there was one person in that house that he purposely did not kill, his infant child, Percy. Yes, and and as to sort of support the theory that Dunham premeditated this uh, well in advance, there was actually one anecdotal story told by a, uh, a colleague, somebody that Dunham knew with a legal background. Um, th- this individual recalled that several weeks before this, this all happened, Dunham had asked him a question about a state law and what would happen <laughs> if, uh, if the uh, trustees of the state were all killed and the heirs were killed and all that was left was a, a grandchild who would who would get control of the, the estate. And it at the time Dunham asked him the, this question, Dunham had framed it uh, in the context of he intended to study a state law. And this was just an interesting question he was interested in learning. And so the relevance of that question to the individual who answered it to Dunham really didn't sink in until after the murders occurred. Then, then it became apparent there was a different reason for Dunham ask, asking that question. Right, exactly, right. Uh, there were, as you've said, um, th- there were clues that suggested that this was premeditated, uh, coldly and calculatedly planned. He, he did some suspicious things in the days and hours leading up to the murders, including withdrawing a large amount of money from the bank. Yeah. Yeah, he went through a lot of money from the bank. Um, he uh, uh, normally would, would leave his books at the university uh, at the end of the day or at night if they weren't needed. And the day before, he, he brought all of his books home. Um, he, uh, he hid a bicycle near the estate or near the ranch. Uh, that was perhaps... Uh, something he thought if he needed to escape quickly, he would have that bicycle. As it turned out, he, of course, escaped on horseback. But um, there were just things like that that clearly indicate that he he had planned this in advance and had taken some preparatory steps to to get ready for this. It also appears that he was getting nervous uh, the day of the event. Um, He was seen at a a saloon where they typically would serve breakfast in these places back in the day. And somebody had run into him and he appeared somewhat distraught, a little bit disheveled. So in addition to all of the calculations and planning, there was also a bit of nervousness that was building up in him in the hours before the murders occurred. We will be back in just a moment. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. And we have returned. So you mentioned uh, the bicycle. Bicycling was a, was a huge fad, a, a, a craze during this time in American history, right? It was a huge sport. And uh, there, there was a, uh, I forgot what the name of what, what you call a bicycle track. I, I know there are bicycle enthusiasts in your audience who know, who know the word I'm reaching for. But there was a bicycle track in the city of San Jose, which is the major city, which sort of surrounds the little community of Campbell. Um, there were bicycle teams and bicycle clubs. There were women's bicycle teams as well as men's bicycle teams. So it was a big deal. And Dunham was known as not only a very avid cyclist, but also a very skilled cyclist. So, so just to clarify, it, it appears that Dunham's plan was to murder everyone at the farm except his son and then uh, slither off into the night and then return uh, likely with a with a concocted alibi and feign shock and grief over the loss of his family. And the family fortune would then fall into the lap of his surviving son, Percy, and Dunham would, of course, control the McGlincy estate. But then when George Shabel got away, that plan went out the window for Dunham, and he, in a panic, decided that his only option was to flee. That's the theory. Yes. If, if he had succeeded as planned, little Percy would have been the sole heir to this estate. And as little Percy's father, Dunham would have been the custodian. So he would have had full control over that estate. And all of that, of course, blew up when Shabel saw what happened and Shabel survived. And then it was known that Dunham was the killer and he was now a wanted man. So instead of being the rich custodian of a very lucrative estate, he was a killer on the run. And pretty much everybody in the state of California was looking for him within about 24 hours. Yeah. So who managed uh, the investigation, the searches? Who, who was in control? Yeah, the, the individual that really carried the sole responsibility for finding Dunham was the county sheriff. And he very quickly uh, organized a posse. And one of the, uh, a couple of things happened. Uh, you know, it was, it was known by this time that Dunham was on the run. Um, it was known that uh, Dunham had headed in the direction of the East Hills, 
the, uh, the, the what's known as the Diablo Mountain Range, which is where, uh, for if you're familiar with California, it's where the uh, Lick Observatory is. And so he was known to be up in those hills, but they, they obviously didn't know exactly where. In terms of organizing a posse, first of all, you can just imagine the shock and horror that this little town experienced. Nothing like this had ever happened. So there was just a lot of emotional uh, desire among probably a lot of people to want to catch him and, and bring him to justice. But that was augmented with a lot of reward money that uh, came together very, very quickly. The very next day, the governor of California offered $11,000 of state money, which in 1896 was a lot of money. And then a number of local friends uh, and community leaders and businesses in the city of Campbell and the broader Santa Clara County put up a lot of money of their own as well. So all of that uh, enabled a, a posse or a search party, if you will, to very quickly mobilize. And they, the point of origin to begin the manhunt was at a hotel in the low foothills of that mountain range I mentioned earlier, the Diablo Mount Hamilton Mountains. And so that was kind of ground zero in the uh, beginning of the search. Right. And as the search is happening, people are coming forward with reports of having seen Dunham, offering clues about the direction he was heading. Yeah. The one thing I should mention here is that if you have ever been to Santa Clara County, when you look up at these hills from the valley floor, they look like very kind, gentle, rolling hills. But when you actually go up on the mountain road that that Dunham himself took up took off on, you quickly realize this is extremely rugged terrain. There are steep cliffs and rocky valleys and thick underbrush and manzanita. And it is very difficult to traverse all of that. In the hours after the uh, the murder happened, he was he was spotted in those foothills, and I mentioned he was spotted at a local hotel. He was uh, walking down the road near the hotel. A couple of uh, people that that worked on the property at that hotel saw him. One of them actually recognized him as James Dunham. And at the time of that encounter, um, Dunham didn't know if they were aware of what he'd done, and they were not a hundred percent sure that. Uh, Dunham was the guy they did it as well, but they did try to have a conversation with him and stall him, and they were unsuccessful in doing that. But Dunham had asked had asked them uh, if they had any uh, suggestions for the easiest route to get over that mountain range and into the Central Valley of California, which would have given him a, st- a, a much better opportunity to escape and get lost. They purposely told him to stay off the main road. They they made up a little fib that uh, the sheriff was looking for cattle rustlers and that he might want to stay away from that. And uh, they were hoping to kind of send him in, in a direction where he'd be easier to find. That didn't happen, but it did at least verify for law enforcement that he was in the area. And then it became a matter of where in the area is he? Where might he be going? And what is the best way to cover these mountains um, and keep him confined to a narrow range before it becomes impossible to find him? And despite all of their efforts, all of the leads coming in, the giant turnout to look for him, by June, it it was assumed by many that he was long gone from the area. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, uh, actually, just within 48 hours, Perhaps it might have been 72 hours. I'm, I'm not sure. My memory is a little foggy on this. But a gunshot had been heard in the uh, the immediate vicinity. And keep in mind, Dunham was armed. And then hours after that, they actually found the horse that Dunham had been on. So at that point, they knew that he no longer had a horse. And that really raised a question. Had he um, somehow gotten out of that mountain range area and into an area where he could have uh, used other modes of transportation to to get by, or did he die in those mountains? And that remains a question that remains unanswered to this day, although maybe we can talk about this a little bit later, but 
Um, I, I have theories of, of my own on that. Right. Yeah. I, I definitely want to ask you about those. But uh, you, you bring up in your book someone named Paul Mueller, uh, who was accused of murdering his wife and, and stepdaughter in Brookfield, Massachusetts. Um, I don't know if you've read the book The Man from the Train by uh, Bill and Rachel James. Uh, I interviewed Rachel here on the show a few years back. Uh, but as I'm sure you're well aware from, from doing research in this time period, that in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there, there were a lot of murders by acts happening across the country. And the Jameses believe that Paul Mueller was the serial killer who committed many of, of, of these murders. But it's, it's interesting that for a period of time, immediately after the McGlincy murders, that some believed that Paul Mueller and James Dunham were one and the same person. There was, there was that, uh, that situation where some people thought they were one and the same. It was, I think, quickly dismissed. But as the months, the weeks, the months, and the years went by, all kinds of theories uh, began to surface. There were lots of, quote, Dunham sightings throughout the United States where people swore they saw him. Uh, somebody thought they saw him in Mexico. Uh, others thought they saw him in Massachusetts and in, in other states. There was a situation where some poor fellow in Texas was believed to be Dunham. Apparently, there was a very close resemblance to Dunham. And his story about he had been arrested for something else, some petty crime in, in some little town in Texas. And his story for why he was in that town didn't add up. And that all kind of fueled the speculation that they had their, their guy. And the Texas authorities in this little town, they wanted the reward money. So they were adamant that they had found him. And the sheriff of Santa Clara County traveled to, De to Texas to meet this prisoner. And accompanying him was a deputy uh, who had known Dunham since childhood to sort of help validate uh, whether or not this was in fact Dunham. And they interviewed him and they thought yeah, he probably is, he probably is the guy. And then, then there was a period where there was a fight over extradition. The Texas authorities wanted the reward money first. Eventually they got him to Santa Clara County and uh, uh, lots of people went to the, the county jail to look at him. And half the people that looked at him swore that was James Dunham. The other half who looked at him, people that had known him over the years, swore that he wasn't. <laughs> and ultimately, um, it was determined that, in fact, he was not Dunham. And he, uh, by this time, by the way, this, this, this went on over a period of weeks. Th this poor guy was sitting in the county jail, and he was probably the most hated man in the county until it was in fact determined that he was not James Dunham. And even the district attorney acknowledged he was not James Dunham. And it was the district attorney of Santa Clara County that actually uh, explained all of this to the judge and urged the judge to release the man, which he did. And by this point, the county had uh, accepted that a mistake had been made. And this guy went from being the most hated man to the in the county to a local celebrity. And it turned out uh, he, he went to the restaurants and people were buying him drinks and giving him cigars, paying his dinner tab. And he was an aspiring vaudeville performer. And they he even got a job in one of the local vaudeville houses. So it turned out to be a happy ending for that poor guy. Right, right. Uh, there were two men, correct, that, that had to deal with cases of mistaken identity, uh, William Hatfield and Charles Krill. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. The Hatfield one was the, I found that to be the more amusing uh, one of the two, but uh, yeah, that's right. So this was a sensational enough case during its time that even by the 1930s, people were still talking about Dunham, right? That is correct. And uh, Eric, I'll tell you um, to this day, uh, while all of the players, the people that were alive at the time, of course, are, are long gone, it is still widely remembered. Um, in fact, when I first, when I finally finished the book and 
the final manuscript had been approved by the uh, history press and I was just waiting for the book to be published. I gave a talk on the book at the Campbell Historical Society. And I gave the, uh, I, I kind of gave the overall contours of the story, told them what happened. And uh, just to kind of have a little fun with it, um, I said that, uh, that uh, I, I sort of made a joke. I said, you know, to this day, uh, every night, every on May 26th at midnight, to this day, the Campbell police gets reports of the sound of gunfire coming from the uh, McGlincy area of Campbell. And, uh, and that people report hearing horse hoofs taking off. And I just paused, there was this pregnant pause and the people in the room were kind of like <gasps> gasping and everything. And I was about to tell them I was just kidding when this older gentleman sitting in the front row said, oh, those are just kids lighting firecrackers. <laughs> well, it, it turned out that this gentleman who, uh, who told me that had lived in Santa Clara County in that immediate vicinity since the 1930s. He had moved, uh, moved from the Midwest as a, as a young man. And he had a best friend that actually lived in the McGlincy home. The McGlincy home was still standing. And he told me of sleepovers where the kids would be afraid to go into the room where, where Hattie slept and the room where um, the mother-in-law slept and, and all of that. So those memories, uh, carried forward into the 30s. And that house wasn't destroyed until sometime in the 1970s. So as long as that house stood, a lot of the old timers were very aware of its history, what had happened there, and the, the story around it. Have you visited the site of the murders? Yes. In fact, uh, the, the gentleman I'm, I'm speaking to, his name was Howard Cating. And he's kind of a legend in his own right. He uh, was a, uh, a very famous race car driver in Santa Clara County. He raced for in several decades. He won all kinds of, uh, of awards. And uh, he was kind enough to uh, invite me to his home. And from his house, we walked around the area where the old McGlincy house had once stood. And she, he showed me exactly where the house stood. He showed me exactly where uh, Dunham would have, the, the road that Dunham would have taken off on uh, when he went off on, on horseback. So it really helped me visualize what happened that night um, after the fact. Right. So after reading your book, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion that he, he probably just died while out in, in the elements somewhere, uh, not long after he had started running. Maybe suicide, uh, maybe he died from, you know, hunger and thirst. Yeah, so there are several prevailing theories out there. Uh, there are a lot of people who feel strongly that he made it into, into Mexico, that he somehow slipped out of the hills and uh, went along the coast and into Mexico. There are other people that think he might have made it to the coast and stowed away on a ship and wound up somewhere overseas. There's another school of thought that believe he made it over the mountain range and into the California Central Valley where he could have hopped on a freight train or uh, found some other mode to move into a more populous part of the country, perhaps the Midwest, and blend in. My theory is, is what you just stated, and I'll tell you why. You know, the fact that gunshot was heard and that hours after that they found his horse tells us that whether he killed himself or not, um, he didn't have a horse. And I have ridden my motorcycle over that mountain range dozens of times. And I will tell you, there's just no way in my mind a human being could possibly make it over those hills. By the way, Dunham didn't have any shoes. Uh, one of the things he had done, he, he had uh, abandoned his shoes and wrapped his feet in cloth to avoid footprints and to throw off the hound dogs. So here's a guy who is a, an emotional wreck, who's lacking food, who's lacking proper clothing, footwear. I just don't think it's possible that he could have made it over the hills. And there have been a number of extensive searches for his body and his bones. They've never found them. There have been situations where skulls have been found in the area and uh, various bones. 
But um, the fact that there have been extensive searches doesn't really prove anything in my mind because that terrain is so rugged, so vast, so diverse, uh, it would just be impossible to search every corner of it. So I, I'm with you. I think that uh, he died up in those hills and that's, that's the most likely scenario. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you one other little footnote. Um, shortly after the book came out, um, I got an email from somebody who, who uh, told me he read the book. He really liked it. He said the reason the book had interested him is that his family owned ranch land in the, the hills where Dunham had been seen. And he had first learned about this, this murder uh, from he read about it in a Wild West magazine in the 1990s. And he'd been intrigued with it ever since. And um, he told me that as a child, when he was growing up, one day he and his father found a human femur bone uh, on the property. And they assumed that it was a bone of, of a Native American. So they didn't disturb it. They left it where it was. And uh, years later, when he had you know, learned about this Dunham case, uh, he began to wonder if that, that might have been Dunham's femur bone. And he actually went back and he retrieved that bone. And uh, he and I, it turned out he and I have a lot of things in common. We grew up like a half a mile from each other. We went to the same high school. We went to the same college. We majored in the same, the same subject. Uh, and we're just five years apart. And uh, we, we, we've thought about seeing if we could have the DNA uh, extracted from that bone, if it's still usable, if they could run a DNA analysis on it, and then perhaps see if that could be linked to, to uh, the DNA of Dunham descendants, uh, if we might be able to help piece that together. But we've never acted on it. It probably never will, to be honest. That would be interesting. Yeah, uh, speaking of, of of Dunham descendants, that of course would be Percy, the baby. What happened to Percy after his his family was was butchered? So what happened to him was he was raised by his grandparents, um, grandparents on the mother's side. Excuse me, it was actually an aunt and uncle, and very little is known about him, but. Uh, social security records were found of, of a man who died in Florida in the 1950s, who apparently uh, was Percy. And I'm, my, my memory on this now is a little bit vague, but there was enough information in his social security records um, in, in the way he used his name that led one to believe that he may very well have been told about who his father was, but he never wanted to acknowledge that. So he was, he did not go by the last name of, of Dunham. I think he carried the last name of, of uh, the family that raised him uh, after the murders, but I believe he kept as his middle name, his mother's maiden name, the, the Wells maiden name. So that's, we'll never know. Um, but that was kind of an, an aftermath. The other thing that, um, is, is worth touching on here, speaking about kind of post-mortem, um, that younger sister that he had, I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, who was sort of a quiet person, a shy person, she never really recovered emotionally from this. After the, in the immediate aftermath of those killings, both the younger sister and the younger brother both lived in San Jose, again, right adjacent to the township of Campbell. And both of them shared that last name of Dunham. And that was not a name you wanted to have. So both of them petitioned the courts to, to change their, to get their names changed, which they did. Um, but that was a stigma that, that left, they were both left with through no fault of their own. And it apparently was just so difficult that the younger sister ultimately died of a, uh, at a very early age in her twenties. And the cause of death was uh, attributed to physical factors, illness, but it, it's widely believed that she really died of a broken heart. It was the depression and the emotional distress that just took its toll on her, her body physically. And she died at a very young age. And some people refer to her as the seventh victim. Wow. Uh, oh gosh. Yeah. That just, just intensifies the tragedy. 
Well, well, thanks so much for talking with us about this. So, so for people who want more information about your book, uh, you, where should we direct them? The, uh, the book is available through History Press. Uh, you can Google it online and uh, a number of retail outlets sell it. Um, booksellers, you could probably buy it from Bonds, Barnes & Noble or directly from the History Press directly. Um, I used to sell copies of my own. Part of the deal was I, I bought like 300 copies and I would go around and give talks on this and sell, sell the books uh, uh, at, at my talks. It retails for about 20 bucks, give or take. Kind of the highlight of my publishing career. This is <laughs> one of two books that I've, I've published. And uh, what was kind of cool about this book is when it first came out, it was in all the bookstores. It was in Barnes and Noble throughout Santa Clara County. And uh, one day I was, I, I got a phone call from a friend of mine. He was at Costco. I don't know if they have Costco where, where you are, but that's that's big in California and here in Virginia now where I live. Anyway, this friend of mine was in Costco and my book was for, for sale in Costco. So um, there've been a lot of great authors in American history, you know, Mark Twain and Fitzgerald and Hemingway, but I don't know if any of those guys have had their book on sale at Costco. So that's a little personal point of personal pride for me. Well, uh, congratulations on that. And again, thanks so much for sharing the story with us. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Again, I have been speaking to Tobin Gilman. His book is called The McGlincy Killings in Campbell, California, an 1896 unsolved mystery. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.